welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. The following podcast is a summary of a webinar presented by the IOM3 Natural Materials Group. It has spiders, scientists and silk. What more could you want? If you do want the full presentations, then visit the IOM3 website. Links are in the show notes. My name is Chris Holland. I'm an academic at uh, Sheffield University, but I'm also the chair of the Natural Materials Group. So we're going to be joined by Johnny Blaker at the University of Manchester, Alex Greenhow, who's CEO and co-founder of uh, Spintex, and then Sarah from the University of Nottingham. And we're going to get a nice bit of diversity, I hope, from here. But you will see that the common thread, yes, there will be puns, silky-based puns throughout all of this. Uh, the common thread that brings everyone together is uh, silk. And I have a bit of admission. I'm also a uh, silk researcher um, and have been working on silk for a while. So I'm probably going to chip in. But without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to uh, introduce our first speaker. Johnny, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much indeed, Chris, uh, for the kind introduction. And hello, everybody. So I'm going to talk a bit about my work on silk over the last, I don't know, I got into silk about six years ago or seven years ago. Um, and I found it such a fascinating material and lots of different challenges to work with. And the talk I'm going to give today is about silk-based conduits for peripheral nerve regeneration. So I'm the research area lead for biomedical materials at the Henry Royce Institute, uh, but I'm also an academic at the University of Manchester in the Department of Materials. So in terms of why we want conduits uh, for peripheral nerve regeneration, there is more than 1 million cases of peripheral nerve injury, with about 40% of those being reported in Europe. And maybe our reporting's better, but I'm not sure quite why Europe has kind of 40% of those. Uh, it seems rather disproportionate. And the cost is about 15,000 euros per person. And less than about 60% of uh, those with upper tra trauma return to work within a first year. So the gold standard for bridging those gaps is to take um, a, a graft uh, from a nerve, an autograft, and, and essentially suture that back. Um, and of course, you get morbidity at that, the, the donor site, um, and there's two sites of surgery, etc. But actually, there's lots of things we could do to develop better conduits to get those, um, those nerve cells to resynapse and join up again. So I'm going to reflect on a few different things that we've tried to do with silk in order to uh, address better nerve guidance conduits. So I've worked with a number of different types of silk, recombinant silk that can be uh, made using uh, bacteria or, or other uh, chassis. Um, so this can be kind of designed and expressed uh, in um, spider silk. I wouldn't dare going extracting uh, silk from a spider. I leave that to the experts. So what we've been doing is try to make better nerve guidance conduits. For a conduit, you'd like to have porosity. Uh, you'd like potentially to have growth factors to in encourage the cells to uh, re re resynapse. Um, it's got to act as a cell support and a scaffold. 
Ideally, it, it would have guidance cues. So here we're using silk uh, nanofibers, so submicron fibers to try and guide the cells, and also impart conductivity. Um, so I'm just going to give an overview of the three different uh, types of ways we've got conductivity into our silks. The first one is using uh, reduced graphene oxide because we're working with either aqueous silk or silk in um, HFIP or hexafluoroisopropanol. If we've used reduced graphene oxide, it was all agglomerate and, and, and not be that great. So what we do, we work with graphene oxide, which seems to disperse relatively well, and then we can reduce it afterwards to get that conductivity back. The second route we've been doing is to use P.PSS, um, which is inherently conductive polymer, um, and it's water dispersible. We've been spinning silk fibres, putting them at pH at 2, where um, the silk is positively charged, and then we've been electrostatically attracting the P.PSS um, to that surface and getting some conductivity, actually quite a lot of conductivity we'll look at later. And also immersing some of those in uh, a polar solvent, uh, which which seems to uh, enhance the conductivity. The last one we've been doing, I think it's rather exciting, is using reflecting. So that's responsible for structural color in certain cephalopods, for example, the Hawaiian bobtailed squid. It's also among one of the highest proton conductors in nature. So we make that recombinantly with our collaborators, and then we decorate our, our silk nanofiber scaffolds. So how we make these nanofiber scaffolds, we take our uh, silk cocoons, we get the worm out of them, we degum them, uh, so all of this is quite involved. Uh, we do some air drying. We then dissolve them in lithium bromide. Uh, we do dialysis uh, to get a kind of aqueous solution. We cast it to get our silk for growing film. And then we can dissolve that in, in suitable solvent like HFIP for electrospinning, for example. And then we get nanofibers of this material. But um, it's you actually need to do some uh, uh, to, to get some crystallinity back. So to generate some beta sheet crystals by immersing this, for example, in a mixture of ethanol and water, kind of 80-20 ethanol to water uh, to get the beta sheet crystals. Otherwise, the, the silt will just go back and dissolve. That could be a useful property for directory delivery, but here we're trying to keep the fibre structure. And I, I mentioned earlier, uh, we're very interested to get conductive silt. So this is to maybe to stimulate it actively to get those nerves to resynapse, um, or it's to provide something that's just a kind of passive electrical cue. Um, so we're exploring that space. What we've done with the electrospinning is get uh, fibres that are around 500 nanometers to up to a micron, get consistent um, fibre morphologies, and just play around with the conductivities. We look in the dry and wet states, and we see there's, there's quite a difference in the conductivities. So we've got this kind of family of conductivities of similar morpho um, with similar morphologies to, to play with. Um, uh, but the conductivity is still limited. In order to get higher conductivities, we've been working with this P.PSS. So what we do, we take our uh, silk nanofibers, we immerse it in some p.pss solution uh, we hold it at about ph2 to get electrostatic into um, attraction and then some of these we also immerse um, in in dimethyl sulfoxide which is a, a polar solvent um, it's thought by washing uh, washing away some of these ion anionic pss uh, shells are partially washed and that leads to um, a, a better disentangled structure that gives more efficient overlap and, and packing for charge transport. Um, we looked at the dry and the hydrated state, so we've really got a huge family here of different conductivities to play with. In, in fact, peripheral nerves, uh, they're about 0.018 Siemens per centimetre. Uh, Grey matter, well, sorry, white matter is 0.06 Siemens per centimetre. In terms of the reflecting, the conductivities are a lot lower. We work with a number of different isoforms. 
I'm then going to just move on in the last parts of my talk about how we've actually made these into conduits. So it's really important to try and get aligned fibres because that will give morphological cues for our cells. So what we've done here is kind of double layer electro spinning. Uh, we've made a kind of random map. So that gives our, our kind of map some integrity because if it was all aligned, you couldn't possibly pick it up. And then over the top of it, we've laid down just spinning at a higher speed on a mandrel. Uh, they're going very, very fast, uh, aligned fibres. So we just change the mandrel speed and we get uh, aligned fibres produced. And we've characterised um, the, the alignment of those. We've got uh, an increase in our, our beta sheet. So our fibres don't just go and dissolve. And then what we've done, we've put cells on these. So we use... Um, a cell a cell line uh, that, that uh, has got lots of properties of nerves and it, it also uh, demonstrates nerve outgrowth. I'll just move on from here and talk about uh, what we're doing now to make conduits. So in the Henry Royce Institute, uh, which is accessible facilities for anyone, especially in the UK, uh, we've got uh, a nanofibers to devices suite. And one of the things that it allows us to do is to make nanofiber yarns. What we've done now is taken phosphate glass fibres that we get from Jonathan Knowles at UCL. These are degradable, dissolvable phosphate glass fibres. We overcoat those in silk uh, nanofibres and the silk nanofibres are on the outside. Um, and what we do, we dissolve those out in water. It just takes um, a, 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 a few hours. And then we get multi-channel nerve guidance conduits. So they're multi-channel because what we've done is put lots of these conduits together and then pass them through that system and overwrap them with uh, the nanofibers. Thank you very, very, very much for joining us. Very, very, very interesting stuff. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Alex Greenhall from Spintex. Thank you, Chris. And I, I think maybe I'll just start by framing what, what is the problem that we're kind of looking to solve. Any kind of science-based company is always looking for that problem that they make an impact on. And as a first initial market, we see that fashion and clothing textiles is really environmentally one of the most impactful industries. Uh, it represents around 10% of global CO2 emissions, 20% of global uh, water pollution, and fundamentally, many of these issues really come down to the material choice that we uh, see being used in clothing, because the material choice actually is over 50% of a garment's entire environmental impact. So just by choosing the right material, we can actually drastically reduce the impact of clothing. And in particular, what we are seeing right now in fashion are uh, particular uh, sustainability issues around the end of life, uh, particularly waste products, uh, lack of recycling opportunity and really pollution, particularly from the growing use of plastics and the resulting microplastics that we have seen in our waterways. So this, this is an industry that really needs innovation and uh, historically it's not actually been too warm to innovation, but we think that's changing and it's a perfect opportunity for uh, interesting ideas and startups to uh, try and uh, make an impact then. So when we talk about spinning like spiders or taking inspiration from spiders, what we mean is inside a spider, there is this liquid protein. And this liquid protein has a really unique property, which is when a physical force interacts with it, be this uh, kind of shearing force or a pulling force, it will change from that liquid state into a solid state. And the spider does something very clever. It pulls on that liquid protein to provide the physical force and that pulling motion provides the energy for water to be expelled from the protein, leaving behind a solid fiber. When we look at the processing and the energy requirements, this is a thousand times more efficient than plastic fiber spinning because it's done at room temperature. There's no need to melt like we do with plastics. It's a 
protrusion process rather than an extrusion process. So there's no pressure to actually force out this material. And what we also see is that this is water-based. This is a water-based solvent uh, that the spider uses, unlike many of the kind of toxic and harmful compounds that we use in many plastic fiber spinning. Uh, so fundamentally, this is an incredibly efficient, incredibly sustainable, incredibly circular way to produce textiles that actually produces a material that normally outperforms nearly anything that we've developed to this day. What we've done at Spintex is we took that inspiration and actually developed a way to make a feedstock that acts like that liquid protein inside of the spider, as well as producing spinning machinery that spins that feedstock like the spider, so we can get those benefits of the high energy efficiency in processing using a water-based solvent and then using quite often uh, standard spinning processes to get the fiber. In terms of our material, we aim to have the kind of following uh, attributes and benefits compared to many of the alternatives out there. This is a fully bio-based material. It doesn't use genetic modification, uh, but it is just a protein. So it will biodegrade uh, without any issue in uh, nature and it won't shed any microplastics or bioaccumulate. It will simply return back into the nitrogen cycle. Our entire process doesn't actually use any toxic or harmful chemicals. In fact, we use less than 15 chemicals in all of our processing. So we're reducing some of that ecotoxicity and also potential danger issues towards uh, workers. And we can also reduce the water usage and uh, the CO2 emissions normally associated with textile production. And finally, as part of our kind of circular model, we can actually chemically recycle our materials back into a liquid form for reprocessing into other types of materials, uh, which could be films, high powders, coatings, and actually all different parts of our process uh, can form a part of a much broader circular model, really making a, a very closed loop system towards textile production for the first time, we think. And we can actually also utilize these materials beyond clothing uh, in other forms. Uh, our yarns can go into knitting to make tubes uh, from our threads. These would have uh, potential applications, particularly in medical use cases. This is a highly biocompatible material, so the body reacts quite well to it. And actually, regeneration is uh, improved in many times when you have these kind of protein-based fibrous structures. We can also produce uh, other types of materials. This could be more kind of hard textured films uh, formed through a form of casting, as well as more pliable hydrogels. Again, uh, really interesting materials for uh, potential medical applications. But we can also look at uh, potential aspects in composites, uh, particularly in the automotive and aerospace industry. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, we are very, very fortunate to be joined by uh, Sarah Goodacre from the University of Nottingham. So thank you very much, Chris, and thank you very much to the two first speakers. It's really fabulous, actually, to learn more um, from people who really know about the material that I spend a lot of time thinking about from an evolutionary perspective. I um, run the a spider lab here at the University of Nottingham. I'm an academic and I, I realise quite a lot of time I don't even know that much about spiders. I'm a geneticist by training and I know how to piece pieces of DNA together. I know how to try and disentangle the different forces that have shaped what you see today. So how much of it's shaped by natural selection to do a certain function, for example, and how much of it is just random um, evolutionary change that we don't really know what it does. But today I'm going to talk about my efforts um, that sort of came about through studying spider silk genes and then bumping into um, a professor in the School of Chemistry here, Neil Thomas. Just one of those slightly serendipitous conversations said, well, why, why don't we make some? 
And so we started making synthetic silk and trying to make it, as I um, title my talk sometimes, even smarter than that of a spider. Now, I'm a real spider fan, so the concept that something could be smarter than a spider is, is slightly problematic for me, but nevertheless. But I think this exemplifies for me why um, they are such good model systems for looking at things that are different to anything else that you might see walking past um, your front door or um, in the case of a spider flying past on silken trail. They're diverse, they're massively diverse. And also I think they remind us to be optimistic. What we know is also true on the inside and that is um, molecular diversity and diversity in the types of silk they use, for example. Although there is all this diversity, this huge diversity in what spiders do, where they go, how they use their silk, actually when you look at what the genes themselves look like, you can sort of cartoon them like this in that they have um, end bits and they have middle bits, and it's really, really conserved. And um, this gives us a template for making them in the lab, and that's what many other people ha have done if they've gone down the biological silks um, producing uh, route, which you've already heard about. Some of them have been mentioned already today by the previous speakers. And people use these kinds of templates to make to make the silks. Well, the key thing is when you make these um, in um, using E. coli, the genetically modified E. coli, um, one of the things you can do is if we draw out um, one of the silk monomers, if instead of allowing your E. coli to put M's, methionines in, you actually give it a fake amino acid. So it's a surrogate. And then what you actually have is something that looks like a silk and behaves like a sort of like a silk, although I think your average spider would possibly not be impressed by our efforts. But nevertheless, it, it behaves like a, a, a silk in the lab environment. But you actually have now have chemical handles that you can stick things to. And that's the really interesting bit. And I'm really intrigued by some of the earlier speakers' suggestions of what it might be useful to chemically be able to allow your silk to do. We have stuck dyes on so we can actually see them. But actually, we've also stuck big growth factors on. So big proteins, big dyes. And it doesn't seem to be problematic um, to form a, a fibre, for example, for, for the silk to behave in the way that we thought it would. This material is different in its protein composition to other silks. It's very different from Bombix silk, for example. And we should expect, therefore, that it, it behaves differently under, let's say, a new condition that we haven't imagined yet. It behaves differently to existing materials. And that's, for me, the, the evolutionary novelty. Really, really interesting stuff other questions why do you think that silk is so conserved in general really really good question and mm. it's kind of a surprise actually in a way although perhaps it isn't because i am coming around to thinking that the spider's greatest triumph if you like is not in a getting silk that polymerizes but the getting something that is a polymer-like silk to stay liquid inside it inside a living body and not to polymerize in the wrong place and um, I think there probably are only a number of different mechanisms that work. But what you can see in a big sort of sort of literary spider's web, no pun intended, but of, of, of genes that have diversified through time, what you can show bioinformatically by looking at the DNA sequences is they've swapped bits merrily with each other. So they do bits of chopping and changing. And it's that that gives you a clue to what were they not able to swap and what were they not able to lose, despite adapting and being so different in how they actually look, how um, biodegradable they are, for example, or any of the other properties that you look at. So I suspect that why they're so conserved in the bits that are really conserved is something to do with inside a living body, you still have to remain liquid. And we know, for example, the genes themselves are much 
more tightly conserved than the actual physiology of the spider. It's a bit like saying, well, I'm going to stick to araldite glue, but I'm going to put in all sorts of different shapes and size of um, tube. So the tubes they have are massively different. In fact, I have a colleague in Prague who works on what happens when the silk kind of goes around corners in a spider. And then there are spiders that are sort of more uh, uh, sort of rectangular in shape. Um, but actually, the conformation of all those curves and allometrically what happens when a spider gets bigger, it's all really interesting and as yet unexplored. But I think the short answer is it's found the solutions that work. And there aren't very many of them that allow something to never polymerize in the wrong place. Uh, wasn't spider silk used as a wound dressing back in the day? We did some studies. So if you take um, Atticus is a spider that spins this little silken sock and sort of lives underground. And I once got someone to send me some because we were doing a test of a whole range of different spiders and whether they were antimicrobial or not. Mm-hmm. And how spider silk sort of was. Well, they might be sort of antimicrobial in one sense, but they really have trod- the spiders have trodden in a whole pile of unmentionables as well. So they are covered in bacteria. They're covered in fungi. Um, and in fact, spiders seem to sort of have this mutual association. That's one of the other bits I work on, actually, is the microorganisms they themselves are naturally associated with. So I suppose, you know, back in the Lord of the Rings Day, I can see they're water, they are waterproof um, and they are breathable, but they're disgusting. And so I would never, ever put it on a wound and uh, neither should you. It's a bit more general, but the talks have got to be thinking about silk use in composites. And so do any speakers have experience in silk-based composites? I can give a little bit of a thought on composites. Uh, I think it's really interesting because when we look at silks traditionally, you know, this wasn't just uh, a clothing textile in the sense of, you know, nice for clothes. It was really a technical industrial textile. Uh, and we can see this when we look back uh, to points in history like the Second World War, where, you know, parachutes were made from silk because apart from silk, there were no other materials readily available that had the mechanical performance to do such a demanding engineering task. Um, and actually, it was the loss of easy access to the silk markets during the war that really spurred innovation within the uh, kind of artificial polymer production for uh, kind of replacing these areas. You know, more natural materials would have been used in the past. So, I mean, silk can definitely be used as a composite material. Uh, it has a lot of interesting benefits over some of the more common materials that we use, particularly when we compare it to something like glass fiber. It's far, far lighter while still retaining, you know, really quite decent weight, uh, strength to weight ratio. Uh, but it also is far tougher on the whole. Um, it can really absorb a lot more energy and absorb some of that energy by stretching, which actually makes it very interesting for some of the more kind of soft composites, which we might be interested in when we're talking about uh, soft robotics and uh, other forms of, you know, soft materials that need that kind of more biological material performance. Um, so we, we think it's a very viable composite material. Uh, some of our work is on developing hard valves, and that is essentially a composite material that uses our fibers as a kind of strengthening part, and then a hydrogel as the actual kind of surface material. It's two different material forms. It's the same chemical material, but it's uh, definitely more of a composite. Iris, uh, would you be so kind as to uh, say hello? Hello, everyone. I So, you know... We all would like to increase the amount of natural materials used. But of course, we're talking about synthetically producing these materials and biomimicry. Biomimicry can be quite broad on the whole. I mean, we can look to nature for the initial uh, initial inspiration. We can try to directly replicate a natural pathway. We can try and do it synthetically, you know, with 
uh, synthetic biology quite commonly. Um, so it's, it's quite broad to begin with. I feel that maybe there's specific examples where you feel that people are kind of crossing the line maybe a little bit on what actually is biomimicry. Um, I mean, we would consider what we do a biomimetic process because we are, you know, attempting to replicate a pathway essentially that exists in nature, um, but doing it on a more industrial level, you know, fundamentally, you have to produce things industrially for the kind of world we live in right now. But if we can make improvements to the underlying process using some of the biomimetic approaches that quite commonly give circularity just by virtue of how biological systems are, there is always a drive and an evolutionary pressure to be energy efficient in processes. Um, there is also a pressure to reutilize materials or have ways to kind of recover resources. So I think just by essentially following uh, those inspiration, we can have a huge impact on our processes. If we can make our manufacturing of materials, you know, reusable materials, recycling of materials, low energy processes, we're going to go quite far in terms of dealing with some of the environmental impacts and in particular climate change that we're dealing with at the moment. Fantastic. So, um, other thoughts then in terms of sort of where, where where the field would be going then? So obviously we're talking about sort of applications from uh, healthcare and through to uh, te- te- textiles. Um, do we, uh, what, do, we'll do a bit of horizon scanning now. What do people see as sort of the future of, of silk? When you get into textiles and you get into textiles deeply, the number of different things you can do with a material is quite phenomenal. Uh, there are so many different ways to make uh, a textile material, you've, you've got weaving, you've got knitting, there are multiple types of knitting, circular knitting, warp knitting, weft knitting. Um, even in weaving, there's kind of standard weaves, there's jacquard weaving, uh, you have non-wovens, you have blends, you have composites, you can combine yarns, you can twist yarns in different ways. There's, there's so much already there that even just playing around with the material that you're putting in can have a huge impact and you can adjust it so much just by uh, the lack of processing. And obviously, when we look at composites, that flexibility is really interesting. It's very useful. So I personally see a, a real good future in composites for material uh, like silk, uh, either actual silk or a material like ours, because there are certain benefits that you get from those materials that you don't get from other types of materials. Very basic example would be essentially all silks are uh, flame retardant by nature in the sense that they will not burn unless there is a continuous flame being applied to them. As soon as the the fire source is removed, they stop. They don't continue to smolder like uh, plastic polymers do. So if you had uh, plain seats made out of silk, it would be very luxurious, but it would also be a lot safer in case of a fire and you wouldn't have to use some of the really nasty chemicals that are currently used to make them flame retardant. So I think there's some real benefits to uh, these alternative material choices. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.